0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: This week on Red Inca we talk about why South Africa haven't produced many top black African batsmen
0: with my guest. My name is Daniel Gallen. I'm a freelance sports journalist from South Africa, now living in London. I've always been
1: fascinated with race and sport from a political standpoint, but maybe even more so when it comes to selection. I remember being told as a young boy that black people couldn't swim, and that always struck me as, well, odd. And I've been told the same about black African batsmen. Not that they can't swim, although maybe they can't, but they are somehow not right in the head when it comes to thinking about batting, whatever that means, so that they can't be top batsmen. So I thought I'd get Dan on to chat about this as he wrote a really good piece studying the issue a few years back. Now, we're going to start this, Dan, by you explaining specifically how your race pertains to South Africanism, because there are going to be a lot of people in this episode who are going to spend the whole time going, well, wait a minute, Ashwell Prince was black, wasn't he? Mm. Can you explain exactly what you are, and then exactly what Ashwell Prince is, and then exactly what we're talking about?
0: Right. I mean, I'm white. I'm uh, your bread and butter white guy from South Africa, Caucasian. But yeah, it's interesting about Prince, because in South Africa, he is defined as colored, which obviously in the UK and other parts of the world, that is a derogatory term, but they are are proudly identified as colored. Trevor Noah, for example, is colored as well. He's probably the the most famous around the world. And that essentially is mixed race. People, if you go back far enough in history, somewhere along the line, there was white DNA, and then there was black African DNA to create this sort of mixed race, as a word. But mixed race in South Africa is actually a derogatory term. Then there's Black African, and those are people of, as you can imagine, sub-Saharan Africa. Kahisa Rabada is Black African. Temba Bavuma is Black African. J.P. dumani Ashwell Prince, these guys are classified as colored. And obviously, then you've got people of South Asian origin, like Hashimamla, who in South Africa are called Indian. Even if they come from Bangladesh or Sri Lanka or, or Pakistan, they're all classed as Indian. And if I'm not wrong, there's also, even within the white community, there's white Afrikaans and white English. That's right, yeah, of course. And um, some Afrikaans people have more Germanic roots, some Afrikaans people have more Dutch, which is quite common. A lot of them have, have a bit of French in there, if they come from like the Stellenbosch region. And yeah, as you say, then you have English speaking white people, which I am. But obviously amongst that, there's there's so many different groups. I mean, in South Africa, people came from all over the world to seek their fortune and, and and escape for various reasons. I mean, for example, I'm of Jewish background, so my family came to South Africa for slightly different reasons than others, but yeah, it's a hodgepodge, and, and as soon as you start classifying people along racial lines, it gets messy, and obviously with our history, it's, it's even messier.
1: It's the levels of which you guys have put extra subcategories on everyone, which I find truly fascinating. But let's stick with black Africans for a minute. So the most famous one, I suppose, is Makaya Antini, and then of more recent times, obviously, there is Rabada. Mm. There's been a lot of r- incredible
0: black African bowlers, hasn't there? Of course, and you mentioned Ntini. He was, uh, in, in terms of black Africans, because he wasn't the first black cricketer in, in the sense that, that you described. But yes, black African, Makai Ntini was the first. and he I mean, he was a revelation. He he, he came from a, a very humble background. He was a, a barefoot cattle farmer in rural Eastern Cape. And he, he got an opportunity to go to an elite school in the region. And he, he was a natural, I mean, a, a supremely gifted athlete. And he just had a real knack. He bowled with those... Big open, you know, swinging arms, um, really nice open action, and he just hit a a really uncomfortable length. Had great success against the lefties because of his natural angle, and yeah, it was a 390 odd wickets, um, an absolute revelation. Really, really often portrayed as just a workhorse, and I think he he's probably unfairly painted as as a sort of a brainless fast bowler. But he did work batsmen out. He 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 didn't necessarily have a great cutter or a slower ball. He he didn't move the the ball a great deal, but but he was very clever with, these, with where he bowled in the crease. So mm. yeah, it probably deserves more credit than, than just being a, a sort of mindless workhorse. But yeah, what a, what a success story. I mean, Nelson Mandela championed him as, as, a, as a hero. He was, he was often portrayed as the guy who was going to drag South Africa away from its, its lily white cricket culture into a, a more inclusive history. But as history has shown, it hasn't quite worked that way.
1: Yeah, I I think for those who didn't watch him, I always think he's almost like a combination of what Neil Wagner did and what Shannon Gabriel does. Mm, Uh, You know, mm. incredible pace, not a lot of movement, um, to Mm. be fair. And a lot of it was... The ability to bowl incredibly long spells. Yes. And then obviously, Rabata has come since then, and we've got Ngidi as well. But the interesting thing is, here is whether you look at the men's team or even the women's team, and the women's team is still very much in development, a very young, t- uh, well, not young in, in terms of players, but they don't have maybe the depth of some, you know, New Zealand or Australian women's teams do going back for many generations. Mm. But again, you have black African bowlers coming through. You don't have black African batsmen in the women's team, do you?
0: No, and a couple of years ago, my numbers aren't quite up to date, but I I wrote a piece on on the the lack of Black African batsmen for the Cricket Monthly, and I found that Ayabonga Kaka is the most prolific Black African run scorer and wicket-taker for South Africa in ODI cricket, and this is the women's cricket. However, she's ranked 44th on the batting charts, and she's in the top five or six in the wicket-taking charts, and that really shows that the same person occupying the highest position for her particular race can be so far down in the batting and so far hype in the bowling. And, and that's just another example of, of this great disparity between the black African bowlers, as you said, Rabada and Gidi. I mean, even Andili Pechlacuaia, who's primarily a bowling all-round, although I think his batting is underrated. There is a great history of black African bowlers, in recent history in South African cricket. But yeah, apart from Temba Bavuma, nothing really to speak of with the bat. And one of the first
1: things that you talk about in that particular article is the elite schools and Hashim Amla brings it up and it's it's brought up by a couple of others, I think, as well. Mm. This is one thing that I suppose as an outsider, I always look at South African cricket and go, so many of the problems could be solved if the government put money into building elite schools for everyone. So all the coaches that are getting paid heaps of money in the big posh schools actually went out and worked with academies. You maybe could help solve this, but basically there's that famous Ian Chapel line where he talks about Rabada going back to his village. Yeah. Whereas Rabada, what are his parents? His mum's like a neurosurgeon or something. His dad's a lawyer. I mean, they're very posh jobs.
0: Yeah, other way around. His dad is one of the top neuroscientists in the, in the country and his mom's a very successful attorney. I chuckled when you said a lot of the problems could be solved if the government put more money into schooling. I think yeah. in South Africa, a lot of the problems would be solved if the if the government, I mean, we've seen in, in this coronavirus how the government has been quite decisive in some ways. And I saw a great line on Twitter that said that you can be a good government, you just choose not to be. And I think <laughs> that's really telling of, of the African National Congress. But yeah, getting back to, to the elite schools, I mean, it's... It's such a challenge because you don't want to undercut them entirely because mm. it's it's such a hotbed for athletic talent in South Africa. I mean, you look at all the great cricketers, almost to a man. I think Vernon Philander is, is the first one, that, the only one that comes to mind that hasn't been a product of an elite school, but has been a revelation. So you don't necessarily want to turn off that production line entirely. But yes, you're absolutely right. I mean. The fact that we have such a backlog in university education, um, there are not enough universities in the country for the people who are able to progress. We, we don't have enough top-level schools for for the amount of people that that are coming through, and, and that that's often why we we kind of do see a bit of a bottleneck when it comes to talent. But yeah, the sad thing is, I mean, Soweto Cricket, for example, three or four, four years ago had to merge with two other clubs in the region to form kind of one super club, but. This was because they just couldn't sustain it. And the reason why they couldn't sustain it was because there was a lack of investments, a lack of infrastructure, and, and quite frankly, a lack of player talent. So, yeah, I mean, Jared, it sounds so simple because it probably is, but a, a lack of investment from the high echelons has, has created this problem.
1: And also, because you are creating good cricketers in that existing system, it actually makes sense to try to push people towards it. You see that in private school areas around the world. Quite often Mm. in America, they they talk about bossing kids into private schools rather than just fixing the schools to begin with. And where this is interesting, and where it meets with your piece even more so is to be a very good bowler. If if you look at Lassif Malinga or Murali, or uh, in fact, uh, Sri Lanka is a perfect example of guys sort of coming from nowhere and being incredible bowlers without the facilities that you may need. With batsmen, it's completely different. And Sri Lanka is one very good example, I think, especially in the early part of their cricket. There's another team that I think is an ideal candidate to explain this is Afghanistan. Right. All these guys have come from kind of nowhere without proper club systems, without proper first class systems, with incredible bowling skills, but their batting is so far behind because a lot of their players just don't have access to professional facilities to prepare on, good pitches to work on, all those sorts of things, which are very important when building batsmen. And that seems to be the problem that has
0: happened with the black South African batsmen. Absolutely right. I mean, you, you couldn't be more accurate. I mean, you, you speak about the Sri Lankans. We were talking about in Kaiantini. He got his first pair of boots after he had, had already developed his, his bowling abilities. I mean, there's no such thing as a batter developing a cover drive before he gets a bat, you know, <laughs> or a thigh pad or, or, or a front pad or whatever the case is. It just doesn't work like that. In this piece, part of it that didn't quite make the edit was I, I went to St. Stylian's, the school where that produced um, Kakhisa Rabada, and also Vian Mulder, still ringing his bell, because I wanted to find out why Rabada moved into bowling rather than batting, and, and when he was at school, he was a, he was a handy, not top order, probably probably batting about five or six for the first team. And he, you know, you, you see it sometimes when he plays with his hips or he gets his front foot down and drives down the ground. He's got batting skills. I mean, you compare him to Ntini's batting or or even Gidi's batting, you can see that this guy developed in an ecosystem that creates top level batsmen. I mean, the custodians' mm. pitches are, are manicured, the private coaching. The fields. I mean, it's it's a dream. It looks like any elite academy anywhere. Well, this is a high school, so yeah. It, it's I hate talking about the the nuances between batting and bowling and making it sound so simplistic because yeah because if we make it sound so so simplistic, well then surely the solutions are so simple, right? <laughs> but but unfortunately, it sounds simple because it is. It's a lot easier to produce a bowler because it, it re- requires more on on natural athletic abilities. I mean, my physique can never bowl like a Khizer but we could potentially shape it into someone who could hit a cover drive well enough that I, I, I could make a decent cracker at a first-class cricketer, for example. I mean, my hands and feet were too slow, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> I mean, I'm not as limited in hitting a ball as I am in bowling fast and landing it on a consistent area for a prolonged period of time. And it makes me sad that it's so simple because, man, you're preaching to the choir, but we've we got to get the people in charge knowing this. And, and the thing is, in fairness to, to say Cricket, uh, Cricket South Africa, rather, they do know this and they are trying to fix it. So my big fight with the, uh,
1: and we could talk more about the quotas later, but one of my big fights Mm. with the quotas is on a very basic level, there are ways that the South African government could step in and help here. Mm. that maybe don't cost millions and millions of dollars but could actually change it if you want to change the image the best way to do that is actually to get involved with 12 year olds it's not to get involved with 18 18- or 20 year olds and as you've just said that if we can make rabata a less ordinary looking batsman if nothing else mm. then there, there certainly is something within that structure that that is going on but i suppose what i also want to talk about is the actual racism here for a moment mm. because there is racism and i don't necessarily just mean it as in uh, cartoonish racism but there's a certain you know i've got a lot of south african friends who work in cricket and work around cricket and i remember one of them sort of saying to me along the lines of you got to understand that the way he was explaining it is so weird but he was like you got to understand that batting's a mental thing and that black south african people just don't have the mental ideas that they need to become top batsmen. And I was like, okay, then can you explain to me how Viv Richards or Michael Carberry or Andrew Simons or Daniel Bell Drummond or Gordon Greenwich, how they can have that Mm. and how a black South African can't. And he sort of looked a bit stupefied. And I think Mm. that this actually reminds me a lot of something that happens in the NFL. So I don't know how much you follow the NFL, but in the NFL, there are certain positions within American football that are just almost automatically black positions or white positions so you had the white quarterbacks and you have, there's a few white players on defense that are always white players. And then you have the running backs and the wide receivers, quite often are black. And sometimes a player will be drafted from one position and they'll be moved to the position that their race is more used to playing. And that is something that I sort of thought here. We're almost getting to the point where everyone in South African cricket's like, well, it doesn't really matter. We're going to produce so many black African bowlers. We don't have to worry about the batsmen as much. It almost seems to be this preconceived thing of, oh, we've sorted half the problem. And so that's what they could do. They're athletic and they
0: can run in all day and they're tall. We'll just make them do that. We won't worry about the other half. Did you feel a part of that is happening? Absolutely, and we we saw that with West Indies when when they first started getting integrated, right? That it was it was black bowlers and, and white batters, and I mean, let's not forget that when Hashim Amla had his first stint with the Proteas, and he struggled, and he was wafting outside off stump with that swashbuckling backlift that became such a hallmark of his, and that people would eulogise and. And you'd have grown men swooning over over Hashim backlift. That same backlift was indicative of his race. It was Asian indulgence. It, <laughs> it was a lack of steel. It, it, it somehow pointed to a a lack of backbone, and that was kind of typical of the color of his skin. As, it, as if we can ascribe a, an identity to to a skin color. But yes, that's right. And you know, getting back to Rabada it be impossible to know. And obviously, Rabada's bowling has, has vindicated his his decision to focus more on his bowling. But I wonder if there was a coach around 15, 16 that looked at this black kid who was good on the drive and, and, and picked up length really well, but hit a growth spurt. And now was this big, imposing, deep-voiced guy. And it's like, that's my bowler. Mm. I'm going to make him a bowler. And, and we hear it all the time in this piece in my research of young under 15 provincial coaches looking at a lineup of kids and without even asking who bats and who bowls, telling those four white kids to put their pads on because they're going to bat first and giving the new ball to the tall black kids who run in ball. I mean, never mind that tall black kid could be a spinner or that short guy could be a medium paced guy who Mm. swings a new ball with unnerving accuracy and a Philander type bowler. Yeah, of course we pigeonhole people according to the race in South Africa, but you must understand that for so long, for so long. I mean, I mean, Faf Duplic is older than the country that he that he captains, right? I mean <laughs> this is a country, I mean, I'm older than the country that I that I write about. This is a country that came into existence in nineteen ninety-four. People will disagree and say South Africa was always South Africa, but I'm sorry, if you get a new flag and a new anthem and the majority of the population comes out of slavery, that's a new country in my book. So we're all colored by the evils of apartheid. And and when you are brainwashed into believing in in, in such binary terms, it can't help but permeate into the way that you define cricketers. I mean, this is a sport that we love to categorize people. What do you bowl? Okay. How fast do you bowl? Are you medium? Are you fast? Are you fast medium? Right. Okay. Do you, do you bowl with, with your wrist spin or, or finger spin? You know, we, we love to categorize people and we define people by their numbers. So of course we, we define people by the color of their skin in the sport, subconscious or not.
1: Yeah. And as I said, I think the South African stuff that you talked about is completely relevant there. But I really think this is a thing sort of across sport. Mm. might be one of the Michael Lewis books where he talks to Daryl Morey, the um, Houston Rockets general manager who didn't pick Jeremy Lin. And part of the reason was they didn't have anyone to compare Jeremy Lin to because he came from Harvard, where not a lot of basketballers come from, and he was Asian American, and there hadn't been Asian American basketballers, whereas if there had been a bunch of them, the next Jeremy Lin, even if he's not like Jeremy Lin, will be lumped in with him. And I think we take a lot of shortcuts, and that's why I went with the American football thing, because you see that a lot in American football, exactly what you said, you know, at 12... 14, 15, 16, one coach eventually says, do you know what? You actually look more like this position than you do this position. Mm. And then it changes. So we had Barney Roney on recently and we were talking about Joffre Archer and science and race is quite interesting. I've been reading up a lot of, on it recently on, you know, how the Kenyans run the way that they do compared to how the Jamaicans run the way that they do. And all those sorts of things are really interesting. And Barney obviously got a bit uncomfortable because it almost leads to stuff about eugenics at a certain point. Right. And that's, right. this is almost cricket eugenics, isn't it? As you said, yeah. he's 6'4" foot five, uh, he has to be the fast bowler, whereas um, Dale Stane might not be that height, or James Pattinson might not be that height, but they might be the better fast bowlers. Mm. So uh, one thing I found really interesting is sort of the opposite in your piece. where I think it was um, uh, Dr. Janine Gray. That's right. She was talking about under 15 batsmen and basically going through, I think it was their um, motor visual skills. And she said that it had less to do with race when she looked at it and more to do with poorer backgrounds. So the players from the poorer backgrounds didn't have the really good motor skills that the kids from the richer backgrounds did. So the skin color in that case was taken
0: away a little bit, wasn't it? I think so. We're talking about batting now because if if Mm. we're going to talk about cricket eugenics, we said earlier, Dale Steyn is able to bowl fast despite his height because of fast twitch muscle fibers and the way that his shoulder is able to bend and his wrist, et cetera. Exactly. Me and you can't do that. No matter how hard we train, we won't be able to bowl fast, but batting is less defined by that. So yes, yeah, so on Dr. Janine Gray's study that showed, it basically got kids facing a, an image of a bowler running up and just before release, at release, and just after release, the image would cut out and the young kids would have to push a button as quick as they could based on what shot they'd play. Would I be playing a forward defensive? Would I be going back and cutting it, for example? And she found it's just tentative at this stage. So I don't want to say a definitive link, but a, a causal link between a poor upbringing and diminished visual motor skills. And children from poorer socioeconomic backgrounds were significantly slower. But what was interesting is that the few black children who had come from comparatively wealthy homes produced similar results to their white counterparts. So. It's tentative at this stage, but it, it does kind of show that if you come from a, a more privileged background, your diet, and, and she said that that it could, it could be a myriad of factors, the, the type of toys that the kids play with, for example. Mm. It could even be that kids who play more Xbox or PlayStation develop their certain foster Twitch, you know, for pressing a button. So it, it, it doesn't necessarily translate as neatly as Dr. Gray would like, but it is interesting to note that, I mean, look at Tim Bavuma, right? Went to an elite school, trained really, really hard in, in the private schools. Yes, started off in an impoverished background, but once you gave him the tools to develop as an elite cricketer, I mean, he was one of South Africa's revelations against the white ball this last summer. So yeah, batting is obviously less defined by eugenics, but it is more of a mental thing and, and it comes down to how the coaches perceive you and, and your roles. And if you go your five years of developmental skills from 15 to 20, being told that you're a batter or a bowler rather, you are gonna kind of run down that avenue. Mm, No,
1: exactly. So we've done the science now, and we've explained cricket eugenics as best as you and I will ever be able to explain them. uh, (laughs) Thank you. Certainly today, anyway. But I want to talk a little bit from the fans' perspective. Obviously, so I first came to South Africa in 2003 for the World Cup. At that stage, fans were very much dominated by white fans and a few Asian fans. I've obviously just been in South Africa a few months ago and was shocked at just how much the fans have changed and, and how the sort of different look at, at a ground. You have a lot of younger people, a lot of women, uh, a lot of people from all different backgrounds. I won't go through all the subcategories again because we'll be here for an hour, but it did feel like, like the rest of South Africa was at a cricket ground, whereas before it didn't feel like that. But... I would assume that there's still a huge part of South African cricket fans who are white people, probably conservative, middle-aged to older men, and they just want to watch cricket. They must be sick and tired of these discussions as much as anything by this point.
0: What a privileged position to be sick and tired of discussions around race in South Africa. Um, it, I love it, when people say, you know, we have to
1: take the politics out of sport, and I'd be like, I'd love to if there's any yeah. way that we could do it, but we can't, so we're going to
0: have to discuss it. As if we've ever been able to do that, you know, when people hark back to a golden age when South African sport was divorced from politics, and I'm like, sorry, do you mean in the seventies and eighties when the majority of the country wasn't allowed to play because of the politics, Yeah. you know, let, let's get real. There's never been a time in South Africa where sport and politics haven't been, I mean, I hate using the word bedfellows, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, have just used it, haven't I? So we'll, we'll let the sub editors take that one out. Um. There are a large portion of the fan base that that would like to see sport and politics removed that, that can't understand why we have to make such a big deal of asking Tim Bavuma, what do you represent? I mean, I wrote I a piece ahead of the summer just before uh, Bavuma got injured. And he told me that he would love to be seen as a cricketer first and a black person second. But kind of what he said in, in not so many words was that that's never going to be the case mm. until he's putting on a 200-run partnership with another black bat at the other end and they've both got ten hundreds between them. And even then, probably we'll, we'll still be talking about the race of what, what a triumph it is. Um, but yeah, I noticed it too, because I, I've been living in London for two years and then went back to South Africa to cover that tour that you were talking about, England's tour. I myself was impressed to see a, a much greater proportion of, of black and, and colored and in Indian and basically non-white fans, a younger crowds. I mean, I, I think that just speaks to the, the growing middle class of South Africa, you, you know, recent graduates, university students who love getting some drinks in on the wooden benches at the Wanderers. And that demographic is definitely a lot more multicultural than it was when I was a student or, or or a recent graduate. So that is heartening to see. I think I think Sia Khaleesi's story in the rugby um, has definitely had a knock-on effect. It shows that black people can can assume leadership roles and that black athletes are cerebral enough to to lead a team and to and, and to talk coherently to the press and and to convey a message of, of of unity without having the better educated white guy do that. But despite that. It was still a damning indictment on South Africa that Cricket South Africa started a test match in 2020, the first match of 2020, with only one black African on the field who deserved to be there because Temba was injured. This was the second test in Cape Town. Bavuma was injured. Ngidi was injured. Petla Choir, I think, wasn't good enough. And Rubida was on the field. How, after all these years, is that the case? So, yes, the, the fan base is coming around, but the evidence on the field, you know, there's still a lot of work to be done. Well, let's talk about quotas because mm. that's kind of, you've, you almost summed it up there perfectly.
1: What is the current quota system? And can you explain it in both levels? It's not just
0: non-white quota, is it? There's a quota within a quota. Yes, that's right. So over the course of a season, you have to have an average of six of the 11 as non-white. And of that, it's two or three have to be black African. And this is an average over the season. So you could you could theoretically field, and it's a mixture of formats. And that's why you often see in the T20s and the one Dayers. Kind of a stacking of black players. I mean, you, you you get guys who no one doesn't deserve to be there, but but there's definitely a, a quite obvious case of we're resting one of the senior white guys to to get in a, a younger black player, not even a younger black player all the time, just sort of the next available black player. But that's fine. I, I have no problem with that. It's essentially a case of of creating opportunities. I mean, I asked and Tini recently i said would would you have got where you were if it wasn't for quotes and he says no absolutely not i wouldn't have been given the chance people didn't want me to be there when i when i first burst in the scene rabata bavuma okay maybe rabata's a little different but bavuma would bavuma have got into the side necessarily when he did and and been given so many chances if he wasn't black he likes to think that maybe not rugby players have said the same thing so I've got no problem with quotas. I mean, uh, selection targets, as as Cricket South Africa would prefer, I use the PC term for it. Quota, <laughs> quota kind of has a bit of a, I don't know if it's the hard k sound, but it kind of just catches in the throat a little bit. So, selection targets is the PC term. I've got no problem with them. I I I think that a a rewriting or a reworking of history is is necessary. I think that opportunities lead to improved performances. I think that the and one thing we haven't spoken about with batting and why, why we've, we've seen a lack of black batsmen is because of the opportunities that batting inherently provides. If you're a bowler and you have a, a, a poor first spell, well, chill, mate, go, go down to fine leg, have a breather, watch the game unfold, come back and get your fifa. That black batter nicks off on, on the third ball because he's tentative, because he knows that he's black and the world is watching, this is my chance. There is no way to go out and be at the best of your ability. So what selection targets does is that it forces the selectors hands. It says that if this guy fails, we got to stick with him. And I think that just eases the pressure from the black batter somewhat. I mean, he'll still be carrying the burden of being a quote unquote selection target player, but at least he has the comfort of knowing that that this failure is not going to be his last. That whole pressure thing, until I read your piece, I probably hadn't
1: thought about that as much, but it's a very interesting thing. I don't like quotas at the top level of sport, but I also think that they're necessary because they haven't done all the other things that they need to do on the way up, Mm. which is, as I said, if you're not dealing with the 12-year-olds, if you suddenly just put quotas on the top, I think you put a lot of pressure on these guys. But at the same time, Intini and Bavuma are, I think, success stories of that. What I found interesting in your piece is the quotas within the quotas. What do you call them? The targets within the targets. Right. So in first class cricket, you need two black batsmen in your
0: top six. Is that right? Not at senior level, but at under 19 age group level. So if... Sorry, yeah. So if you're a provincial under 15 coach and you've you've selected your requisite black players, you have to have, as you say, two batting in the top six. So, So, so what would happen was... Because they were realizing that, that provincial um, teams were stacking black players towards the back end and bowlers and white guys were, were the batters. Right, okay, so Cricket South Africa noticed this and they say, right, you have to have two within the top six. So what they would do is they'd put one guy opening the batting and one guy batting at six. And they'd figure, okay, that guy opening the batting, look, any, anyone can get a good ball. If he goes out, he goes out. If he makes runs, he makes runs. You know, the, the, the risk is sort of mitigated. We'll then stack three, four, five with our best players who in our minds are white and we'll put our number six as a a black player. Cricket South Africa noticed this too and said, right, if one of your two top six is is black and you've selected him and he bats number three for his school or he bats number four for his school or his hub or wherever you selected from, that's where he's got to play. And Cricket South Africa were pretty strict on this. There were some pretty hard conversations with, with provincial coaches, some coaches were told, listen, it's it's either our way or the highway, and some walked, some some got on board. But a strong arming of the developmental teams has definitely seen Im- improved performances at those levels. It, it hasn't quite reflected at, at the top. I mean, the only batsman of, of real repute that has come through is a young 21-year-old by the name of Sinietemba Kesile. Uh, Keshile, I beg your Two years ago he was in the top five run scorers in the four-day competition. Um, he plays for the Warriors down in the Eastern Cape. So it's a slow burn, as you know. I mean, you you can't implement changes today and expect them to to yield fruit in in two three years time. It, it has to be a slow process, mm. and that's also why you see selection targets at the elite level. Because politicians grow impatient. They say, "Well, yeah. guys, it's been it's been twenty six years since apartheid. Why is Temba Bavuma the only black batsman? Why, if Kahisa Rabada is suspended, do we have to now scramble for another black player?" I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty certain that Temba Bavuma wouldn't have played that that final test at the Wanderers if Rabada wasn't suspended. The only reason why he did play was because there wasn't another black player fit and available. Sorry, did that answer your question? It did, definitely. I mean, my first thought as an analyst was uh, uh, when
1: I first started reading the two batsmen in the top six, I was like, well, I'd probably open with them, get the two hardest hitting black African batsmen I can find and then just have steady Eddie's
0: white guys behind them or Asian guys behind them. Yeah. That's what they tried. Uh, but, yeah, exactly. But as you know, I mean, as, as we've seen at the elite level, just because someone is a, is a free-flowing middle order batsman doesn't mean he's necessarily going to be an opener. Mm. And you saw a lot of black batsmen at that age group making hundreds for their school or for their academy, getting selected for a provincial team, now going to open and just finding it a whole different ball game. Losing confidence, nicking off with three and just either quitting the game or being consigned to the scrap heap. As a guy who has justification of, you see, black batsmen can't make the step up. Yes, he may have been making runs for his school, but now we've given him an opportunity at the next level and he's failed without any culpability on the coaches putting him in the position that he shouldn't have been in. Let's move on to Bavuma, because this, this sort of all leading
1: up to him. So he's the only black African batsman to make a test hundred. He had a bit of a rough time when he started. He then made 100, sort of pumped up his average for a long time. Since then, he's been in a bit of a funk when it comes to Test match cricket. Weirdly enough, I think he's averaged more or less, you like this when I was on TalkSport, had Kevin Peterson on talking about how poor his record was. And I said, I think over the last two years, he's averaged more or less exactly the same as Faf Du Plessis has. So, mm. which also shows that he's not been the only South African batsman who struggled no. <laughs> of recent times. That's been a fairly... I don't think skin colors had too much to play with that. That's been no matter who you are, if you wear your South African badge, unfortunately. Oh, yeah. With uh, guys like A.B. Villiers and Colin Ingram overseas, the guys left in the team have struggled a little bit. And Bavuma did. So he lost his position. He comes back for that Wanderers test. It was an incredible environment. I mean, that's. Wanderers is one of my favorite grounds in my life before that, but being in the ground when the choir was singing and especially when he was playing well, it was a beautiful moment to be inside of a cricket ground, one I'll always remember. But he is a struggling batsman. He's a very limited player. I'm not sure there's ever going to be anything at test level that's ever going to stop him doing that. He might average 35 to 40, but he's never going to average
0: 50 over two or three-year period unless everything comes together and aligns for him perfectly. It's horrible to admit that, but I, th- I think that's true. I mean, it's it's interesting you compare him to Faf because Faf also did come in for a lot of criticism. I mean, failure with the bat throughout 2019 united races more than Nelson Mandela could have ever dreamed. So, there was definitely the one shining light in, in a, a pretty dour year for South African cricket. Yeah, but Fuma, limited, yes, all the cliches that, that you've probably heard before. Nuggety, hardworking, mm. you know, Dixie side out of a hole, but... Is he a premier test number four? Is he a Kane Williamson, a Virat Kohli, a Steve Smith? No, absolutely not. I think South Africa have really two batsmen in the roster with the potential to be that. I mean, Quentin Kock is an obvious one, and Aidan Markham, I think number four is Aidan's best position, but that's a that's another tangent we don't have to go down. But Vuma, look, he, sh- he, sh- he showed his prowess against the white ball. I mean, he, he picks up length really well. He's solid on defense. He, he's one of those batsmen because of his height that he, he kind of does play all the way back when he's going back and he doesn't need to go all the way forward. He, he waits for the ball really well. I mean, I think if, if Temba finishes with an average above about 40, we'd, we'd consider that an absolutely stellar career. Currently, he's averaging 30 mm. in tests, 55 in ODIs and 49 in T20. So that might show where his future lies with the side. Unfairly thrust into this position of of, of statesman, you know, mm. being asked to represent something to so many people. I mean, we can argue that Virakoli represents something to so many people and, and he's still being able to back the numbers up. But every cricketer in India represents something to so many people. Steve Smith represents something to so many people, but that's kind of uniquely Australian in a way. I, I, do, I don't think there's there's anyone in world cricket that has ever had to carry the burden that Temba Bavuma has been asked to carry as a black batsman in South Africa. Man, that's got to knock at least 10 runs off your average. Just walking out there and, uh, and being able to be mm. clear of I'm facing a hostile wood in my comeback test. The man's on a roll on a light and quick uh, wondrous strip. What are you thinking? I mean, and if he's not thinking, man, I, I got to succeed here because the color of my skin matters so much, then he wouldn't be human. And I can tell you one thing that Timberwoman is, he's very much human.
1: Well, I mean, that's good because uh, if he was a robot, he'd be defective and I'd want him upgraded slightly. <laughs> I mean, you talk about all those pressures. The one You did br- briefly mention it, batting at number four. The truth is that a batsman like him, and I think of someone like Asad Shafiq Mm. when Misbah and Eunice were around batting at six and then they sort of wanted to move him up the order and he went, no, no, I'm okay with six. I remember having a conversation with Mark Butcher once who obviously usually opened the batting or batted at three and then for a little while he batted at six in Test cricket and he he looked at me like dead in the eye and he said, you have no idea how much easier it is batting at six than batting anywhere else. And four is this, it's become, I mean, when I grew up, number three was the position everyone wanted to bat. Now it's four. It's it's this sort of status symbol. So he's got, it's just like everything's always against him. And then watching him in those one days, all I could think of is, This guy's a natural limited overs cricketer. Uh, His fielding is a huge plus in limited overs cricket, whereas in test cricket, you probably won't see it as much. He's a brilliant runner between wickets, which means even when he's not hitting boundaries, he can get Quinton or Pesla or JJ on strike just by stealing singles because of his pace. Mm. He's a busy batsman as well. He is one of those guys who's always looking for angles and everything. And I almost feel like, Had he played four or five years batting at number five or six in one day cricket, really cutting his teeth and doing it that way, and then he might have been able to build more of a test career coming through now than he would have the other way. But the problem is that he's been picked because
0: of what he is as much as um, his skill set. That's true. And I also think he hasn't been helped by telling himself and having others tell him that you are the the next number four for the Proteus. He is adamant that that is where he wants to bat. He kind of sees himself, I mean, I, I don't think it, it, skill level, but certainly in the role that he could play for the side, he he wants to be the next AB de Villiers. He wants to be the next in a in a lineage of of great middle order batsmen for South Africa: Kallis, Amla, de Villiers, Duplessis, Even uh, uh, you know the last few years, Bavuma. He he wants to be the guy, and you know he captains the Lions. He he bats it four for them, and he fields in, in the slips. He he sees himself as the main man, you know. And I think that his perception of himself has probably held him back. I mean. JP Dumini had no problem batting at six. Um, Ashwell Prince had no problem batting at six. Yes, they probably would have wanted to have come high up the order, but because they were in such strong teams, they had accepted their station. I think because Temba is now, let's not forget that he's the vice captain of the test side, he sees himself as the main man in a team that is transitioning and he and he wants to assume the responsibility. And I, you know, credit to him. I I, I value his gumption. I like his his moxie that he thinks he can go out there and be the main guy in tests, but I don't know, may, maybe someone needs to have a word with him. Because what you described, running between wickets, working angles, a busy batsman. Yeah, that works in limited overs cricket, but that also works in test cricket. Mm. And and where does that work in test cricket? That works at number six. Watching him and, and Quinton opening the batting in in the one days, I would love to see that at six and seven or five and six in the test side. I really think that would work. So yeah, he he's probably a, a bit of a victim of, of his own views of himself and and... Who knows where that's come from? I mean, I think a lot of that has come from the Lions, but a lot of that's come from what we need him to be. Well,
1: that's the biggest problem, isn't it? Is that you do need him to be because there is no other obvious option. So hopefully in a generation, the next black African batsman won't have to deal with that kind of pressure. The pressure won't disappear until it's a normal thing, as you said earlier. But by being the first guy and by doing it so well and wearing it so well. I mean, no one could look at him and go, that's a player not trying. Oh, no. That's a player not trying to get everything out of himself. And for that, if nothing else, he sort of knocks the stereotypes of someone. I talked about earlier that sort of, oh, they they don't think the, the right way. And, and there's always, you know, black guys and lazy stereotypes and all that sort of stuff. Realistically, he's the opposite of all that. He's just not quite good <laughs> enough as a batsman at the <laughs> moment. But what an incredible figure he is. And you can't watch him and not go, geez, I just wish... He could get
0: that next ball through cover. Mm, mm. And as you say, so hard working. You said, I mean, he's tiny, <laughs> I hope that's not disparaging a bit, but he, he, he is, he is very little, but what an athlete he, he is. Mm. You sit next to professional athletes and you're like, okay, this, this guy is like toned. like could bounce a coin off this guy. Every muscle moves when he walks, he's an incredibly hard worker in the gym. He hits a thousand balls. He lives and breathes the sports. I mean, there's no one can doubt his mental fortitude. I mean, the fact that he still walks out there with a protea badge and performs Badly, well, whatever the case is. I mean, the fact that he's still out there every day, after all that he's been asked to carry, plus his charity work on the side. I mean, he he sets up foundations in Cape Town. He's he's putting kids through school. He's a he's an absolute gem of a human being. He's not that exciting to talk to. He's quite monotoned and but once you kind of scratch through that surface of the, of the media training, he's a real deep thinker of, of the game. He knows his place in history. He reads about Fire in Babylon. He he is described as as sort of his. Uh, his go-to movie. He says that beyond a boundary is his cricket Bible. He's read it more than three or four times. So a real deep thinker of the game, of race, of, of his place in the world. But as you say, just, just a limits it matter. and unfortunately, that is how we're going to judge him. Dan, you are
1: not a limited podcaster based on today's uh, thing. You've got your own podcast. Do you want to give
0: it a plug? Thank you very much. Yes, it's called Short Fine Legs. You can find us on Twitter at short underscore fine underscore legs. I don't know why I put the underscores in and I so regret it now. Yeah, I thought I was being clever, but uh, yeah, quite annoying. Now now I've got got to deal with the underscores. Yeah, it's a fun podcast we do. Um, I I believe it's one of the only South African-based cricket podcasts. The latest episode is an interview with Telf Advice. I've heard of him. You may have the guy with the hats, who I've now been lumped with in the press box. People, some, <laughs> Jeff Lemon came up to me and said, so are you trying to be the next Telford Vice? And I took it as a compliment, but also a bit of an insult. So I, I might have to think of a new way of standing out since Telford's got the hats down. I'm not just saying this. South African cricket riding hat game is at
1: a level that no <laughs> other cricket uh, (laughs) industry I've ever seen. The sheer investment that you guys put into your hats. (laughs) I I spent most of my time in South Africa just talking to guys about their various headwear. I I think you guys are doing great. Uh, Good luck with the podcast and we might get you on another time. Yeah, we'd, we'd love that. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for listening. You can follow my guest at Daniel. Gallant, but there'll be links in the show notes. Anyway, I'm obviously always on, what do you call it, the Twitters, but I now have a YouTube page as well, which you can find under my own name for some videos and some other stuff. Please review the podcast on Apple or anywhere, really. These things really help. I mean, it's not like I'm asking you to get a tattoo with red for on your chest, though that would also be cool. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon, so if you can help me feed my producer Nick, please pop some of your local currency in there, and a huge shout out to all those who already do. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorrison does many things that no one understands, and the theme tune is called The Prisoner, although I was calling it something else for the first few episodes, and it's by the band The Red Crickets.